Lord, we do thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for um, confidence that we can have that your word is true. Uh, We thank you that, um, Lord, you've given us Jesus Christ. We have this glorious message of the gospel that we get to proclaim. But Lord, as we encounter different conversations with individuals, people have questions, people reason in different ways, and we want to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us with gentleness and respect. We want to do as your word commands and destroy arguments and uh, bring down strongholds and every lofty opinion that raises itself up against the knowledge of God. I pray that you'd grant us wisdom and grace as we seek to learn and grow in these skills in these areas, that we might uh, be a witness for the gospel of Christ for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, just, uh, just by way of just a little bit of review of where we've been so far. Um, not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, on this, but just kind of refresh our memories. Uh, apologetics comes from the Greek word apologia, meaning to explain or to reply, to refute charges or to defend something. Uh, that's where we get the terminology. We see this in 1 Peter 3.15, be uh, ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you, etc., uh, there's some different definitions that people use. Uh, real simple definition, knowing what you believe, why you believe it, and being able to explain why in a winsome way, or the uh, uh, vindication or demonstrating the truthfulness of the Christian worldview over and against the non-Christian worldview. So this is a this is a a, a discipline. It's an it's an approach. Um, we have to use our minds. We have to use our intellects. We think through. We we use reason to do this. Um, there is a difference between evangelism and apologetics. Apologetics is the hope, or it rather is defending the reason why we believe what we believe. Evangelism is the proclamation of the good news. But these things have to go together, right? If we ever use apologetics and we have an apologetic conversation and we never use that to bring and point unbelievers to Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel, if apologetics doesn't end in evangelism with the gospel... We failed. And, and I say we failed, and I say, you know, sometimes we have encounters with individuals and they're brief, and we don't have the opportunity to, to go all in depth in that, and maybe it's just a real brief statement of, oh, I believe this and this is why, and that's all you have time for in the moment. So I don't want to make it out to be like, oh, well, you didn't bring that to the gospel, now you're just, you're just a failure. Like, I don't want to uh, mean it that way. But I, I do want it to be in our minds that the goal of having these conversations is the gospel, the goal isn't just to win arguments because, hey, I'm smarter than you. Right? I'm not trying to prove anything about myself. Uh, Paul even wrote to the Corinthians, don't, don't you guys know, many of you were, not, not many of you were noble, not many of you were, you know, intelligent, like this isn't, uh, not many of you were wise or, uh, or God has called individuals and they're, uh, many of us are just not on the level of individuals like, uh, you know, I think different philosophers and things that exist in the world. They're very brilliant individuals. We're not all there. The point isn't to get us all there, but we do want to be able to offer a reason for the hope that's within us and point people to the gospel of Christ and demonstrate that what, what we believe is the only reasonable thing to believe, and we don't have to have a PhD to do that. And we don't have to be, uh, have the highest IQ in the world to do that. Talked about how apologetics is for Christians. Uh, we should be able to explain why we have faith in Christ. We should be able to critique unbiblical worldviews. We should be able to use our minds and our intellects for the glory of God. And, and as we do this, it edifies ourselves, right? It builds us up in our faith knowing that, hey, you know what? What I believe 
there's, there's some good reasons for this, right? There's some good uh, reasons why this, these things are true, and we see it as evident. It's also for non-Christians. We want to answer non-Christians' questions, remove distractions from belief, and point unbelievers to faith in Jesus Christ. We talked about different approaches to apologetics, the evidentialist approach, appealing to creation to demonstrate truths which Scripture speak. Um, I think this does have usefulness. It confirms Christians in their faith, removes surface-level objections for non-Christians. But really, this uh, evidentialist apologetics is reasoning to Scripture. So it's, it's trying to demonstrate truthfulness of things in order to get to the Scriptures. And I think there's some weaknesses with that approach. And we talked about some of those in the past. Uh, it seems everyone's an atheist. It can only take someone so far places mankind to judge over God. The evidentialist approach is to try to reason to the Scriptures. The presuppositional approach reasons from the Scriptures and demonstrates the truthfulness of what we see in the world around us how it, uh, and the truthfulness of the Christian worldview from the Scriptures. So there's a difference between reasoning to the Scriptures and reasoning from the Scriptures, and I think this is uh, a more scriptural approach appeals to the power of God's Word to refute erroneous worldviews. This doesn't mean that we're doing nothing but quote Scripture at people. But it does mean that we're assuming the truthfulness of the Word of God and we're standing on the truthfulness of the Word of God and we're, uh, we're appealing to the power of God's world to refute erroneous worldviews. We can critique unbiblical worldviews with truth that the Scriptures has revealed to us without necessarily responding to someone, well, you're wrong because, you know, thus saith the Lord, here's this Bible verse. I think that, that's, that's a true thing to do, and I would never stop someone from just quoting a Bible verse in that way, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's all the approach entails. This goes after the presuppositions of non-Christians. Uh, there's uh, things that b- unbelievers believe and think about the way things are in the world, and this approach seeks to challenge those. This is the uh, tearing down strongholds and every lofty opinion that raises itself against the, the knowledge of God. Uh, this is that approach that seeks to do that, going after their presuppositions, and it relies upon Scriptures to convict of sin and of truth. So that's a very brief and a rapid review <laughs> There's reasons why uh, this is, I do believe this is the scriptural approach to take, and we're going to walk through several key texts that I believe uh, leads us to approach things in this manner. And the first of those texts is Romans chapter 1, and that's where we're going to spend our time today. Romans chapter 1. And we're just going to walk through a couple of paragraphs And then we'll come back and make a couple of observations and conclusions based on what we've seen. And I'll just even say now, um, well, well, let's just just walk through it and we'll we'll see what we find. Um, Let's see, if we want to read this passage, could we just read maybe two verses apiece as we come around the room? Jessica, if you don't mind starting. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18, and we'll read through verse 25. Sure. Okay. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their righteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes... 
namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the ages resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So when we're having apologetic conversations with unbelievers, it's helpful for us to have a grasp of who it is that we're talking to and what's actually going on within the hearts and the minds of the unbeliever so that we can bring God's Word to bear onto their life. And this is really what presuppositional apologetics is about. It's, it's understanding the nature and the state of fallen humanity so that we can effectively bring God's Word to bear with where they are genuinely at. So we see in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and righteousness of men who do what? They suppress the truth. That word for suppress it means just like what you might think it might mean of trying to, trying to hold something down. So I think, of, um, I think of taking my kids to the splash park and there's the different water jets that squirt out of the ground, right? And the kids like to go over and like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but they like to go over and try to put their hands over top of the jet as the water's coming out, right? That's, the water's trying to shoot up and they're poof, trying to hold the water down. They're trying to suppress the water jet, but the water's just coming up and it's just spraying all over the place. That's kind of what is in my head a little bit as we think of this concept of suppressing or trying to, trying to hold something down. There's, there's truth that's there. There's truth that's evident, but, but they don't want to see it. They don't, they don't want to know it, and so they're actively suppressing the truth so they don't have to think about and stare in the face of what they already know to be true. And if you see that in verse 19, it says, this is, we know this is true, they're suppressing the truth. Why, verse 19, for what has been known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. God has not kept himself a secret. God has revealed himself. He's revealed himself in nature, and this is called general revelation. Uh, we see this in uh, Psalm chapter 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork, right? It's this, just looking at the world around us, we see the glory of God. It, it proclaims the glory of God. What can be known about God is plain to them. It's, it's not hidden. It's, it's right out there in the open because God has shown it to them. God has revealed himself sufficiently to all mankind. And he goes on to explain in verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. We see that, that again, here we find a a distinction between creation and creator, right? There's, there's, the, there's the divine nature, 
His eternal power and His divine nature are made. Uh, They've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So there's the creator and there's a creation. There's a distinction there between the creator and the creation. There is a God, and guess what? You're not it, (laughs) right? We are not God. We are creation. We are created beings, but it doesn't take a rocket scientist, it doesn't take uh, some, you know, the, uh, it's this incredible genius to look around and see that we are part of creation and that it, we, are, we are creation and there is a creator. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. You just look around at the world and it's evidence that someone had to create it. This isn't something that we have to reason to logically in our minds and just try to figure it out. Huh, you know what? I just think that makes sense. No, it's just naturally evidence that this is true. It's, that's what that, that phrase there where it says it's clearly perceived. It speaks of knowledge that is just understood without having to, to try to reason to something. It's just naturally and plainly understood. Ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, these things have been evident. His eternal power, his divine nature. For this to exist, some incredible, powerful being would have had to create it. His eternal power, and that being would have to be God. That being is deity, so his divine nature is evident just by looking around at the world around us. But the unbeliever suppresses that truth. It's evident. The evidence is there but it's being suppressed by the unbeliever. It's being suppressed by the one who uh, does not acknowledge God. Would this be what, what people would refer to, or theologians would refer to as a, that noetic effect of sin? Uh, that, that comes into play. That does come into play, uh, especially in a couple of verses. Uh, we're going to see that in verse 21 in particular. Um, but we see that there's both... So verse, I, I believe verse... Um, 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In chapter 2, we see that God has written his law in our hearts, and so there's a conscience aspect there that we know right from wrong. So there's an internal witness to the existence of God. And then we see in creation that, that God has revealed his eternal power and divine nature in nature. So there's an external witness to the existence and the power of God. So we see an internal and an external witness Well, now as we get into verse 21, we begin to see some of those effects. For although they knew God, again, there's the external witness and the internal witness. We know God is there. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. There's this ignoring of him. There's, you know, we go around and we live in the world and we think it's just us and we're just kind of self-made people, self-directed individuals. Um, you know, there's that, oh, what's that? There's that, um, you know, who's the captain of my soul uh, line. Um, I, I, it's escaping me for the moment, but yeah, yeah. Exactly. He's the, 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 this, uh, this independence of establishing myself. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm it, right? And they're not honoring God or giving thanks to him. God has given us all things. We, um, uh, last week for the morning sermon, we talked about the concept of, of gratitude and how um, 
God has given us so much. Every breath, every heartbeat, every time our eyes blink, every time we, we speak words, everything, it's all a gift from God, and we're not giving thanks to Him for the good gifts He has given us. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, and yet we don't give thanks to Him. But on the contrary, verse 21 says, they knew God, they didn't honor Him or give thanks, but instead became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And this is to what uh, you were saying, Jim, the noetic effects of the fall. The word noetic refers to, it comes from the Greek word uh, that speaks of our minds, uh, the usefulness of our minds, our ability to reason, our ability to think accurately and truthfully is affected by our own willful sinning within our hearts. It says they became futile in their thinking. That, f- that word for futility speaks of, of speculations or worthless reasonings. <clears throat> We're trying to reason through things, but because of our own sinfulness, even our ability to think logically is affected by the fall, is affected by our own sinfulness. So we have these worthless reasonings, these, these vain speculations and our foolish hearts were darkened, the, the light that would have come in is pushed out, our, and so as a result, the folly within our hearts is only, only grows as the hearts are darkened. The foolish hearts were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools. We think that we're smart in our own sinful fallenness. We think we're smart. We think we got life figured out. Mankind thinks they can get life figured out. If they think they can go through life, they think they can figure out all the, all the things of the world, they think they can figure out legislation, they think they can figure out global warming, they think they can figure out all these different things without reference to God. And in, as a result, they're showing themselves to be fools. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. And so we see, it goes on to say, claiming to be wise, they became fools. This evidences itself in a variety of ways. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we, rather, good morning, rather than worshiping the one true God who made everything, we worship the creation rather than the creator. We see this in idolatry, and it, it doesn't necessarily always, um, you know, the, the concept of idolatry, we think of like, oh, bowing down to, you know, these carved images or something. It's not, there's, there's more to it than that, right? Yeah, Phil. I think they do make reference to God in that they do not want to understand or listen to Him. So, so actually, I think they are making reference to God, even though they're not speaking Yes. It's almost creation. Yeah, I kind of get the impression of going out, almost like going out of their way to worship anything but God. Yes, that's that's the idea. There's so the in shorthand, suppress and replace. I'm suppressing what I know to be true. They do make reference to God in their hearts and their minds, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. And I'm, I agree with that. And I think we're that's that informs our apologetic methodology but they suppress that knowledge, they suppress that truth that they know to be true 
and replace it with a lie. And that's your point, worshiping anything other than the one true God, whether that's themselves, whether that's something else in creation. Uh, they're just seeking anything else other than the one true God uh, for their, um, to direct their worship. So they exchange, uh, exchange the, the glory of the immortal God for images. Uh, therefore, God gave them up in less of their, their, less of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's, um, <clears throat> it's really a, a very sobering picture of, of humanity in willful ignorance, in willful rejection. You know, I think of the, uh, the passage in, in 2 Peter chapter 3 that speaks of the scoffers that will come in the last days and they're, they're denying the return of the Lord. Oh, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things have continued as they were from the beginning of creation. You know, the circle of life rolls on and nothing ever changes. But Peter says they willfully overlook this information. There's a, a willful blindness. It's an intentional like, nope, nope, I can't. La, 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 I'm not listening, you know, type of thing where there's an intentional uh, aversion to the truth and to what they know is right and true about the Lord. So we have this statement and then we have this passage there are some conclusions that we can draw from this, that, some apologetic conclusions. I'm, I'm, we're looking at this text, and it's revealing information about the heart of mankind, about uh, his own um, uh, shortcomings before God and his own willful rejection about what he knows to be true. <clears throat> Where does that lead us in terms of our apologetic methodology? And there's a few points that, that we can make obser- observations on. And all of these observations aren't original with me. These are available in different places, different resources around. Um, but um, let's just walk through some of them. First, we note that there is sufficient evidence in the world. Right? The natural revelation that we have, what may be known about God, is plain to them. His individual attributes have been clearly perceived. There is sufficient evidence. Natural revelation leads us to a place where there's no excuse for unbelievers. You know, there's a philosopher, his name was, uh, I believe this was Bertrand Russell who said this, uh, that if he were to die and face God, uh, what, what would you say to God because you're an atheist and, in, and let's just say you stand before him and he wants to give you an account, what would you say? And Bertrand Russell's response was, I would ask why he took such great pains to hide himself. But, yeah. Has God hidden himself? No. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Like this, this is not, there is sufficient revelation in the world. There is no excuse for anyone to say, oh, I just didn't know. No, you are self-deceived in this. There is no excuse. We see that it's part of man's sinful nature to suppress and replace. We talked about this concept already. We suppress and replace, suppress and replace. And this is something that uh, even, 
even as believers, we have to be on guard about with our own flesh that is still, you know, that, that kind of hangs on and remains uh, with us. Um, we don't always like to look at our own uh, flaws and be willing to be truthful with those and say, oh, this is sin that I need to get rid of. That's vestiges of our flesh that is, is still a part of our existence on this earth. But this is, this is to the heart of man's sinful nature. We suppress holding down the truth like that water jet. I don't want to look at it. And yet all the while that water jet is spewing water everywhere, whether you want to look at it or not, whether you want to be in denial about it or not, that, jet, that, that truth is there. But we want to suppress it and replace it with a lie. <clears throat> The noetic effects of sin, and this is what we just talked about a few moments ago, is this speaks to the pervasiveness of sin's effect on our ability to reason. Our foolish hearts are darkened. Our, uh, um, what's the language it uses? Uh, futile in our thinking. Vain speculations. Some translations render it that way. Claiming to be wise, we become fools. It doesn't matter if you have seven PhDs, you're the most brilliant scientist on the planet. If you look at everything in the world and say, no, God didn't make that. You're a fool. (laughs) um, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I I forget if it was like a video that he produced or a a book that he wrote, but I read his, the quote, and I can't remember exactly where the quote is from. But he began his piece by saying, the universe is all there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. Sorry, Neil. It's foolish. Claiming to be wise, he's become a fool. And Neil deGrasse Tyson is a very brilliant scientist. He's a very brilliant fool. He's a very brilliant fool. This is where we get the idea that it's... it's Literally sophomoronic is the Greek word Sophia, wisdom, moron, exactly what you think it means. Sophomore, sophomoronic, um, a wise fool. That's it. The noetic effects of sin, it affects our ability even to reason. Consequently, we see that there is really no neutrality when it comes to apologetic conversations. Um, sometimes we like, to, we like to be tempted that we think that we can have neutral conversations with people about truth. But when we see the nature of what man is doing, and when we understand what truth is, there's, no, there's nothing in between truth and lie. It's either true or it's not. There's nothing in between there. There really is no middle ground between a follower of God and an enemy of God. There's no neutrality. As a result, what, what is really going on in our apologetic conversations is a conversation between truth and non-truth. Truth and non-truth. And so we have a clash of worldviews. The biblical worldview is coming into contact with the unbiblical worldview. <clears throat> there's the biblical worldview, there's what the Bible presents as true, as, that, as, as God has revealed himself to be true. 
And then there's all the lofty opinions that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And these two things are at odds with each other. The biblical worldview is crashing against the unbiblical worldview every time we have a conversation with someone about the nature of truth. There's a clash taking place. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a violent clash. It doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, an argument. That's not what I'm referring to. But when there's two ideas and one's biblical and one's unbiblical and they're, they're coming together in an encounter, those, they don't jive, right? There's a clash there. And so there is, recognizing that there is no neutrality, it helps us to understand that every time we are in a witness encounter, an apologetic encounter, worldviews are opposed to one another and are clashing against one another. <clears throat> and, and understanding this is helpful for us because I think, under, you know, sometimes I think when we start talking about apologetics, we can start to think about how, oh man, you know, there's so many different worldviews that are out there, right? There's the Muslim worldview, there's the Hindu worldview, there's the atheistic worldview, there's, uh, there's just a... Um, you know, a hedonistic worldview. There's, a, you know, there's different worldviews that are out there, and we think that we have to become an expert in all of these worldviews so that we can try to, try to pick them apart and show the truth, you know, the truth in all these different areas. When in reality, we don't have to become an expert in all of the unbiblical worldviews. If we become an expert in the biblical worldview, error will be easy to spot, and we can show the clash very easily and simply when we uh, engage in those conversations so we don't have to become an expert in all these different worldviews that are out there. We need to become an expert in what the Bible says, what God's Word has to say. We want to give ourselves to the Word of God, to what God has revealed Himself for us. And then we'll be able to spot error anywhere. <clears throat> now, sometimes when we start talking about, okay, there's a clash of worldviews, there's no neutrality uh, the noetic effects of sin, the sin's effect upon our, even our ability to reason is so pervasive. Our nature is to suppress and to replace the truth. All these things, we look at all this and we start to wonder, man, how, how can we have a conversation with an unbeliever if this is what they're doing? They're so far, uh, they're opposed to God. There's different passages of Scripture that talk about how in our natural state we are enemies of God, uh, we're hostile to God, to doing evil deeds, that's Colossians. Uh, Romans 5 talks about being enemies of God. Ephesians, or Philippians rather talks about being enemies of God. We have all this language and all this, this uh, picture of what mankind is like. We can get to a place where we go, well, how can we even hope to have a, a conversation with these individuals? Is there any common ground where we can have a, a, a fruitful conversation with an unbeliever? And so I just kind of throw that out to there. Think with me a minute. Is there common ground that we have with unbelievers despite all of this to where we can begin to have apologetic and evangelistic conversations? To put it another way, what is the point of contact? I think there is a point of contact. What is the point of contact? Yes. We are both created by the same God, which means What? Yes. So the um, 
even, I, I would argue, even with someone who is hostile to God or hopeless or how you, I forget the language that you use exactly, I, I still think there's a point of contact. Um, Yes. Yes. It definitely should inform, you know, when, when uh, Peter talks about giving a hope with gentleness and respect. It's, it, it ties in with that, of just of knowing where we've come from and knowing that that was once where we were. Yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no room for haughtiness and pride in, an, in a conversation like this. Yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So just to kind of bring all of these things that have been kind of said together and uh, to bring a little more focus to it. What we read in this text is that mankind knows that God exists. And they're suppressing it, but the fact that there's, there is that knowledge there, it's innate within us, that alone is a point of contact. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to just go out and say, hey, you know God exists, just admit it already. <laughs> That's probably not going to go well. <laughs> uh, and and there's still this... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's how we can talk, though, sometimes. We can talk that way, yeah. We can talk at far easier than talking to you. Exactly. And so when we, if we approach the conversation in that way, they're still suppressing that truth, so that's not going to be a very fruitful conversation. But... Because the knowledge is there, I can appeal to that knowledge in different ways that will bring that out. So you mentioned the concept of the image of God and how we have value to God. That's because we are made in the image of God. We're all made by the same God you'd mentioned earlier, Jim. Because we're made in the image of God, we know that human beings have inherent value and worth. Well, society would affirm that. Even an atheist would affirm that. Now, they, they're going to affirm it inconsistently, but that's our point of contact. 
to say, hey, look, if I were to, you know, if I were to just, to, you know, to shoot you right now and take your life, would that be a problem? They're going to say, well, yeah, that'd be a problem, right? They know that that's wrong. Well, why is it wrong? It's only wrong because we're made in the image of God and we're appealing to what they know to be true. They're, they're, they're attaching value to human life on some level, but they're doing so inconsistently. And so what we're in knowing that this is our point of contact, we can say, hey, look, uh, you're being inconsistent with your own worldview, destroying strongholds, every lofty opinion that raises itself against the knowledge of God. You're inconsistent with your own worldview. The only way this makes sense is within the Christian worldview. The only way this makes sense is if we're made in the image of God, which we are. And you know this to be true inherently because you affirm the value of human life. So there's a point of contact there. That's one point of contact. Uh, objective morality is another uh, hu- uh, point of contact. Um, every, every attempt to try to make uh, morality subjective is so inherently flawed on its own. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. To be fair, you tell a child who has been firmly reinforced that Santa Claus is real, that Santa Claus is not real, they will be equally as haughty and about it as we are about God. So, yeah, yeah. The, um, it's interesting, so... If you were to ask someone, why, why are you upset that I am talking about God or uh, the Scriptures? And so I've, I've had conversations with this actually out at, um, out at the, uh, <clears throat> the Big Four Station down there when we had with stuff out there. I was talking with an individual, and, he's, and he was just like, no, nah, the truth is going to win out. You know, this is all false. This is all a lie. So why do you even care? Yeah, I told him, I was like, absolutely, I agree with you. But why do you care about truth? If there's no God, if, if, if there's no, if, if all this is random, why do you even care about truth? Truth can only exist in a biblical worldview. Unbelievers have to borrow from a biblical worldview to say that there is a, such a thing as truth, to be able to say that there is such a thing as morality. Mm-hmm. Not like all the time, mm-hmm. and um, there were a lot of atheists, which were pretty much agnostic. And like it always has baffled me that people like one of my really good friends in band was Unitarian, which is <laughs> yes. But I don't understand how somebody who doesn't believe in God, like Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, not like God generically, sure. Um, how they have morals? Like I've never gotten it because, like, what's your moral compass? What's your yeah. 
where you, where's your basis? Like, yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't say that they were bad people at all. They had very caring hearts, but extremely misguided. Yes. Like, I just don't understand. Like, I've never understood it. <laughs> and it does, it's, it, it defies reason. Right. Truly, and this is that, that, that's a another point of contact of um, in Romans chapter two. So, if we were to go there, it says the law of God is written on our hearts that we have a conscience. We know what's right; that there is right and wrong, even if our compass is broken and we are misguided about what is right and wrong exactly. We know that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and that itself is a testament to the truthfulness of the biblical worldview. If, if God is not true, then there is no morality. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Yeah. Have my perspective and your perspective, but there is one truth. So there was a, uh, there was, we're. One of the great issues of the day, or the, I guess the battle of the day, is that words, words don't have meaning. They just, they mean whatever we want them to be. But there is no objective meaning of this word. Even to utter the sentence, though, assumes that. That's false. So, so that's that's part of the point is that the, any a subjective approach to morality, a subjective approach to any of these things is inherently flawed. But they have to borrow from a biblical worldview in order to try to even make that case. Um, so, I'm I'm gonna there's a. I saw a funny moment of a, uh, a theologian who was on stage and someone asked him a question during a Q&A time at some conference. I don't even know what conference it was. But the question was, what's the best way to try to convince someone who believes in subjective morality that there is objective morality? And his response was three words, steal his wallet. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> Very quickly, they will believe in objective morality, right? But I'm, just, to, just to bring all of this to a close... Romans chapter 1 helps us as we understand the nature of what man is, what man is like, and what man is doing in relationship to truth, suppressing and replacing the truth with a lie. It helps us understand that there really is no neutrality or middle ground, but that doesn't mean there isn't common ground. And that's a distinction that I think is important for us to see. There's not a middle ground, but there is common ground they have the knowledge of God. They have the law of God written on their hearts. And so there is a point of contact. There are avenues for us to have apologetic conversations, even with someone who is suppressing and replacing. And through those conversations, we can show them the futility of their own worldview and, show them and demonstrate the truthfulness of the biblical worldview. But it starts, this is, this is why... I believe a presuppositional approach is more effective and more biblical than an evidentialist approach because, again, the issue is an evidence. They're suppressing the evidence that's already there in front of them. The issue is rebellion. So we show them the futility and point them to Christ. 
And with that, we need to close because we're over time. Thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us. Lord, your word says that knowledge puffs up. And we can know things that are true and accurate perfectly to a T. And yet we can be haughty in them and destroy our witness and our ability to, to help people see the truth of the gospel of Christ. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be humble. I ask that you would help us to be loving in our encounters, to speak the truth with love, to give a reason for the hope that's within us with gentleness and respect so that people may hear, believe, and follow after Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.